Father, thank you for promising to send us the Holy Spirit. Thank you for promising to lead us through the Spirit into all truth. Thank you for promising to lift Jesus up in our hearts. We ask to see you more clearly through the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. I'd like to introduce you to Thomas James. Sorry, actually, he would want me to be very clear that his name is not just Thomas James. His name is Thomas Raynard James. And that name makes all the difference for Thomas James. You see, if you had visited Thomas James over the last 30 years, you would find that he would tell you the story that he told absolutely every person he came in contact with. If anybody would listen, he told them the story. And the story was this, I am innocent. He was convicted of a murder in 1990. And he said, I'm innocent. I did not commit that murder. You see, when he was arrested several months later, they asked him, where were you on the evening of this such and such? And he said, I can't remember. It was months before. Can you remember where you were months ago on a specific night? It can be kind of difficult. And then he was put in a lineup because his name was Thomas James. And one of those that was accused of having been scouting out the house where the murder took place was a guy by the name of Tommy James. So, of course, he was in the lineup. And when his picture came up, one of the eyewitnesses who was in the apartment said, that's him. I know that that is him. And so Thomas James... Thomas, sorry, he would like me to call him Thomas Rayner James, was placed in prison for 30 years. You know, we've been looking in Daniel chapter 8, and we've been looking at how there are some accusations that have been leveled against God and some mischaracterizations of what God's name represents, what his character is all about. Go with me again to Daniel chapter 8. And in Daniel chapter 8, We saw that there's this ram that's raised up on one side and there's a goat with a prominent horn that becomes four horns and then this little horn that comes up. And we'll look again at some of the truths we've noticed about what that little horn does. But in Daniel chapter 8, a fascinating thing for us to note is these two creatures are far different from chapter 7. We already talked about that. What's the difference between these animals and that of chapter 7? Anybody remember What was it? These are animals that aren't predators, right? Yeah, these aren't predators. These animals are also used in the sanctuary as sacrifices, right? But not only that, there's only one time in the sanctuary system where both of these animals are used for the purpose of the cleansing or atonement of, or for a sacrifice for the sin of the whole congregation. Only one time, once each year, I should say, that this took place. And that was on the Day of Atonement. This is super important as we look through Daniel because we've seen this little horn power. He attacks God's character. And these are the attacks on God's character. It tells us that truth was cast to the ground. And we saw how in the medieval times, Bible censorship became regular, that Bibles were chained to the wall, that Martin Luther said, give me that book if only I could have the Bible. 
Then we saw that the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And we saw that that this took place as the earthly churches became the place where people were told, if you come there, you can receive pardon. And they even were to the place of indulgences being sold to build the church on earth. This, This form of external religion that neglected what God wanted to do in people's hearts. And last week we saw how the daily was taken away. What Christ is doing in the heavenly sanctuary was counterfeited. And we began to look to a specific group of people who were the priests who could grant absolution for our sins, who could lead us. And we forgot the priesthood of all believers, that you and I are all called to represent Christ as our high priest who is daily ministering on our behalf. So let's continue. We're going to look at Daniel Chapter 8 and verse 13, it says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? How long is this going to go on? Have you ever felt that way about the world lately? Maybe about your own life lately. Like, how long is this going to go on? How long am I going to endure this? Even heavenly beings feel that way. As they look at the chaos on the planet, as they look at this this egregious power that is exalting itself as high as the prince of the host, becoming the, the viker of Christ on earth, misrepresenting Jesus' character of love. And they say, how long is this going to go on? Concerning the daily, the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And then comes this crucial Verse, an important verse. And he said to me for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now we're going to look at the, the time frame here a little bit later on, but then the sanctuary will be cleansed. We looked at how Jesus got table flipping mad in one instance when he cleansed the sanctuary. But this term, the sanctuary shall be cleansed, needstock, the, the, the temple will be set right. Um, Dick Davidson in his book, the song, A Song for the Sanctuary, says that word in Hebrew cannot be translated into one English word. It means to cleanse, it means to restore, to set right, to vindicate. It has this beautiful plethora of meanings, to, and it's only used in this form, the nifal in Hebrew, in this one place in all of Scripture. Super important verse that actually the Seventh-day Adventist Church sees as one of the the founding principles of our our entire movement. For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So where does this come from? We saw there's a lamb, a, a ram and a goat together, and there's a sanctuary being cleansed. Will this only happen on one day of the year in the temple, in the sanctuary, and that was on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. So I believe clearly that this is pointing to the Day of Atonement. If you have questions about that, there's more evidence that we're not going to go into a lot of detail on today, but I believe that, that this clearly points to the, to the uh, Day of Atonement, which is recorded in Leviticus chapter 16, and also in verse chapter 23 in less detail. But we're going to look at this real briefly. It's kind of complicated, but we're going to look at this quickly Uh, And I hope by the end it's going to become clear what God is wanting to do in our hearts. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when the 
They offered profane fire before the Lord and died. Now, sometimes we jump right into, okay, what exactly did the priests do? What did they do with the goat? What did they do with the ram? What did they do with the, the, the priest actually offered a bull for his own cleansing, but it wasn't for the congregation. But there's a context here. What is the context? How does God introduce this instruction to the children of Israel? What's the story behind it? Nadab and Abihu, they had gone to offer fire on on incense to, to, to have the incense in the sanctuary in Leviticus chapter 10. And notice it says, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. Fire actually came out. And we're going to look at this here in just a second. So, Here you have Nadab and Abihu. They come to the sanctuary. Later on, we get the idea that they were probably inebriated. They were under the influence because right after this, God says, all right, priests are not to drink alcohol. And they offer incense. And this is what I believe is taking place here is the gospel is being skewed. The fact is that the sanctuary is about what God is wanting to do for salvation. And these men, they come and they bring a different type of fire. They bring their own fire, which they had lit and not God. God had actually lit. We saw the the continual perpetual burning that was burning on that altar was lit by God himself. That fire didn't come from human construction. That fire was there based upon God himself. And Adab and Abihu, they came up with their own fire. They came up with their own way, just like Christians have tended to do throughout history in looking to our own merits. For burning the incense, they took common instead of the sacred fire, which God himself had kindled. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 359. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. Now, now I want you to notice this. Notice what it says. Fire came out and what? It devoured them. If, if fire devours somebody, how much would you expect to be left? Nothing. Devoured. Absolutely nothing left. But look at verse 5. So they went near, this is uh, their uncle's son, so uh, it's basically their, their dad's cousins. You don't need to know that. But anyway, so they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. The fire devoured them, and then people came and carried them out. A little strange, isn't it? What is it about the presence of God that is a consuming fire? And what does that consuming fire consume? Is it about the physical bodies? Not in this story. The devouring that took place was an internal devouring that led to precipitated their death. Notice Psalm 68 verses 2 and 3 says, As wax melt before the fire, so the wick- let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. You see this contrast? On the one hand, there's, there's the wicked who melt like wax in the presence of God. The beauty, the glory of God in all of his dazzling splendor, his love, is too much for them to handle. Their shame, their guilt, their unresolved sin in their lives causes them to melt internally. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice in the presence of that same consuming fire. Yes, let them rejoice exceedingly. Isaiah 59 verse 2 gives us a key of what's going on here. It says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have, what does it say? Hidden his face from you. You see, there's something wrong in the human psyche. There's something that's gone wrong, and it's caused by sin. Sin is the problem. God is not the problem. 
God is not the one in this verse that it tells us that separates us from God, is it? Who separates us from God? Sin. And who's the one that sinned? Us. We separate ourselves from God, and in the process, his face is hidden from us so that, like Adam and Eve in the garden, we're running from the very one who's coming to give us a promise of the first gospel promise, and we think that he's our enemy rather than our friend. Your sins have hidden his face from you. Notice Romans chapter 2 gives us this picture of what takes, inside of, takes place inside of us. It says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, your, your refusal to repent, your, your hardness of heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. When, when the books are opened, when I come face to face with the reality of what I've done, There's something internally that is too much to take. Verses 8 and 9 says, Indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. This is what takes place in us when we have unresolved guilt. You've probably experienced this before. Have you ever had somebody who really wronged you? Or have you ever wronged somebody in a really egregious way? And then have you come in contact with them and tried to look them in the eyes? In fact, I just had this happen this week. I was talking, and a guy literally would not look in my eyes the entire time. I kept looking at him. He would never look at my eyes. And this is consistent whenever I see him. And when I see that, maybe you've experienced it before in your own life. We watched the Return to Palau film. Fascinating story about a, a guy who murders a family And he said that the most painful moment in his life, at the end of the video, he said something amazing. He said, the most painful moment of my life, having murdered this family, having lost my mother, he goes through all of these terrible things that have happened in his life. He said, the most painful moment of my life is when Melissa DePaiva walked into the room and she looked me in the eyes. And he said, that hurt more than anything in my entire life. You see our guilt inside of us? It cannot stand when we really come face to face with the reality of the stuff we've done. We can't handle it. We break down and it it causes all types of insanity. It causes all different types of things. Um, But in the end, when we come face to face with God, it will be too much to handle unless we've come to know his forgiving love today. So God says on the day uh, after the death of, of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord. Now think about it. These are priests. These are priests who have obscured the gospel. They've obscured the daily ministry, kind of like we're seeing in Daniel chapter 8. They have, have obscured that God is the one that lights the fire. God is the one that offers the sacrifice, kind of like Cain and Abel when Cain offered his own fruit rather than bringing a lamb that represented that Jesus was the one who would die. He brought his own works. Well, Fire comes out and consumes them. Notice verse 2. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he, does it say lest I kill him? Lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. And then he launches into this chapter about the Day of Atonement. So you have this sanctuary system, and if you think about it, you have these two 
veils here, right? And you have the Shekinah glory is in the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is. This is where God said, I want to dwell among you, but he does this odd thing. If he really wants to dwell among us, then why does he put all of these, there's the veils that he had him build in between humanity and himself. It's simply this. We cannot handle the unveiled glory of God in our sinful state. And the reality is that God's got an incredible problem because the thing which cannot stand in his presence, which is consumable in his presence, which instantly combusts sin, is inside of the people that he loves more than his own existence. You see how that's a problem? Can you imagine having your child that you love so much and yet if you came into their immediate presence that they would instantly be consumed by the sin that was inside of them, that they couldn't handle coming into your presence. And so we find that there's this picture that God has, is veiled. He's got two veils in between us and him. And throughout the year, you would come if you committed sin, and you would come to the gate, the door of the sanctuary, and you would come and you would confess your sins over the spotless lamb that you brought. And one of two things would happen. The priest would either take that blood in a bowl uh, from the, the, the offering, or else he would eat the sacrifice from your offering. If he took the blood in the bowl, he would take it into the holy place, and he would take it before the veil of the most holy place, and he would sprinkle it there before the veil of the most holy place. In figure, your sin was being transferred, and, and now it's on God's shoulders. Now it's God's problem And you got to walk away forgiven, set free. I don't got to worry about it anymore because I have been forgiven. But God's still got this problem in the sanctuary. He's got the reality that the watching universe and even all of humanity is wondering, is God just? Is he truly righteous? And so we're going to find that the yearly day of atonement was the day on which all of that shame and reproach that is thrown upon God and his character because of our sin, humanity's sin, because of we who are a priesthood like Nadab and Abihu who have misrepresented the gospel, the good news, that God has done it all, that that has got to be taken care of and finally fixed in the salvation history. Notice verse 30 says, For on the day, on that day, the priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sins Before the Lord. And then it goes on to say in verse 33 that that even the sanctuary is cleansed on that day. Daniel 8.14 said, And he said to me for 2,300 days, Then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now notice this. Richard Davidson in Song for a Sanctuary, page 1010, says this. We must emphasize again that it is God who takes responsibility for the cleansing. When it says the sanctuary is going to be cleansed, it's God who does it. Notice how it goes on. The priest shall make atonement for you to cleanse you. Leviticus 16.30. Who's doing the cleansing? Is it you or the priest? Sorry, not a rhetorical question. Is it you or the priest who's doing the cleansing? I think I heard. Okay, the priest in this this verse, right? Leviticus 16.30. All right, and then the next verse. He, the messenger of the covenant, will purify the sons of Levi. Malachi 3.3. A prophecy about Jesus. I, the Lord, will cleanse you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Ezekiel 36, 25 and 27. God is the one that does the cleansing. 
God himself assumes ultimate responsibility for the cleansing and for the obedience of his people. Although the day of atonement brings a call to holiness, even the life of holiness is rooted in justification by faith in the atoning blood of Christ. And that is incredibly good news. Because if we turn this day into a fear-based day where I have got to accomplish something, then we are just like Nadab and Abihu. And when we come in contact with God and we no longer have a mediator, we're going to be consumed by our thoughts of who God is. Only as we trust wholly in the merits of our substitute and surety can we truly obey God in spirit as well as in letter. So Thomas Rainer James, he had friends who were campaigning for him. They were trying desperately, but nobody could get somebody to represent him. And they didn't have enough money to hire what a good attorney would, would cost. And he was desperately searching for somebody that would believe his story. Until one day, Natalie Figures found out about his story. She was only two years out of law school. Only two years graduated law school. She wasn't working in criminal defense. She was working as a business and finance attorney. This wasn't her expertise, nor was she an expert attorney. But they brought the case to her. And it's, first, she kind of pushed it away. She was about to have a baby. But she began, in the, the weeks before having her baby, she began to study and look at this case. And as she looked at the facts, she became more and more bothered until finally she said this, I couldn't stop until he was out. So I kept giving them more. It became overwhelming. Well, sorry, actually, we're, we're, we're fast-tracking here, right? So for the next 18 months after her baby's born, she goes and she visits 75 different people knocking on doors. She spends 2,000 hours in total building evidence about this guy's case. And then she's taking it to the prosecutor's office or this office in Florida that has the, the authority to reconsider the case. And she's bringing all of this evidence. She's going around and finding every possible thing, all for free. No pay whatsoever. She did it all for free. Logged 2,000 hours in studying this case. And she said this, I couldn't stop until he was out. So I kept giving them more. It became overwhelming evidence of his innocence. I think that's a little beautiful glimmer of the purpose of Jesus Christ in our lives. The purpose of the blood of Christ to vindicate the character of God in his forgiveness of humanity and his justice in setting us free. Signs of the Times, May 30, page 1895, says this important thing about the atonement. If you walk away with nothing else today, walk away with this thought about who God is. The atonement of Christ was not made in order to induce God to love those who he otherwise hated. It was not made to produce a love that was not in existence. You see, when we look at the sanctuary, when we look at what's taking place there, it is not there to change the Shekinah glory. It's not there to change Yahweh. That's not where the change has to happen. The change has to happen inside of me because what's inside of me cannot handle being with God forever. And I've got to change. It was not made to produce love a love that was not in existence, but it was made as a manifestation of the love that was already in God's heart. The whole sanctuary system was, is there to express the love that God is longing to give to humanity. And 
exponent of the divine favor in the sight of heavenly intelligences, in the sight of worlds unfallen, and in the sight of a fallen race. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loved that's why he gave. That's why he acted. That's why he has worked in humanity's half. We are not to entertain the idea that God loves us because Christ has died for us, but that he so loved us that he gave his only begotten son to die for us. There's a temptation when we look at the sanctuary system, when we, we look at how you have to approach God through the mediator, through the priest, to think, okay, the priest is on my side, but the one in there, he's not on my side, and he has to change through what the priest is doing. But the reality is what the priest is doing is to vindicate the one who's in there and to bring me to him. In fact, some Jewish interpreters have called the holy place the trysting place which is basically the, the area of courtship and of romancing before entering into full intimacy, before entering into marriage. So here you have this picture that the sins are brought into the sanctuary throughout the year. But on this day of atonement, in Leviticus 16, it tells us that there were two goats that were brought to the high priest, and a lot was cast. And one of the goats was for the Lord. It says this one was, was given for the Lord. But in contrast to that, it says that another goat was given as, some call it the scapegoat, some translations will say that, uh, but really it's Azazel, a, a personal name. It, it, that goat is for or to Azazel. What is that all about? What's going on in this picture? It, it seems a little, little strange, but the fascinating thing is that that when the priest sacrificed the goat that was for Yahweh, there were no sins that were confessed on that goat. And this time, the priest worked in reverse order. This time, he would take that blood and he would start by going into the most holy place. And he would sprinkle that sinless blood. And then he would come into the holy place and he would sprinkle that blood. And then he would come out to the water basin and he would sprinkle, he came all the way out to the altar, I mean, and he would sprinkle that blood. It's a picture that, that now all of the reproach is being rolled back from God and it's coming out of the sanctuary and his character is being vindicated. And then the goat for Azazel, the priest would take two hands and lean on that goat and would confess the sins of Israel on that goat. And then that goat would be sent out into the wilderness. The goat did not die. There was no... Uh, no sacrificial death of that goat. There's no blood shed by that goat. That goat was sent out of the camp. It was put out of the camp of Israel. So verse 20 says this. Now this is, this is the key to understand. That whole scenario where he's confessing on the goat for Azazel takes place after this. Notice what this verse says. Leviticus 16 verse 20 says, and when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place. So Atoning has taken place for the holy place. The tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. So first, there's the atoning. The atoning has already taken place. Now, sin is being confessed on the goat for Azazel. Richard Davidson summarizes it like this. The interpretation of Azazel as a demonic power was the predominant view of early Jewish sources as well as also represented 
also well represented in the early church fathers and is the prevailing view supported by modern scholars. So do you get the picture here? The sin is coming out of the sanctuary and it's being laid on the head of Azazel that represents what? It represents that, that all of the blame, all sin is laid on the shoulders of Satan, not in a mediatorial role, not in a forgiveness-oriented role, but the fact is that Satan will be to blame for every sin that has been committed in the entire universe. It's a beautiful picture of the vindication. It's not Yahweh's fault. Yahweh did not create the sin problem. It, it has nothing to do with his character. And all of this is rolled back and it's all put on the head of Satan. And you see this glimmers of it in Revelation as he is bound by a chain of circumstances for a thousand years. You see this picture that, that Satan in the end, even confesses the righteousness of God. We see that in Philippians chapter 2, where it says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of those in heaven above, those on the earth, and those under the earth. Even those who are lost, even Satan himself, are going to come to recognize the justice, the love, the mercy of God, although they have rejected it. So let's keep going through here. A significant, the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 4, page 44, says this. A significant feature of the final judgment is the vindication of God's character before all the intelligences of the universe. You know, Colossians says that, that the cross, it dispelled and disarmed the powers in heavenly places. No longer was there any argument about who God is because now people could recognize what his character was all about. The false charges that Satan has lodged against the government of God must be demonstrated as utterly groundless. And this was the constant desire of Natalie Figures to demonstrate that ultimately there was one thing she needed to demonstrate, and that was that that eyewitness had not told the truth. Because that guy was sentenced to life in prison without any evidence. There was nine fingerprints found at the scene of the crime, and none of them matched up to Thomas Raynard James. No physical evidence was there. The only evidence was one eyewitness who said, he's the guy. He did it. So one day, no, she wouldn't take interviews. She wouldn't allow people to come, this, this eyewitness and so finally, Natalie went to her door. And she knocked on the door. The door cracked open. And she said, I'm just here. And she told her why. And she said, I just want you to pray about this and to ask God if this is really right. Because I know that he did not commit that crime. She said, here's my number. Call me. She was desperately pleading with this woman to recant of her, uh, her, her saying that this was, was the crime that was done. Well, she's driving, and she said within 10 minutes, her phone is ringing. She pulls over to the side of the road, and it's that woman on the phone. She said, who are you, and why are you doing this, and, and who is pushing for this? Who's paying you? She said, look, I'm doing this for free. It's, it's just, I believe with all my heart that Thomas Rainer James did not commit this crime. And the woman said, well, I know he didn't. He's been in jail for 30 years. 
Later, she said, I was constantly in turmoil thinking about the fact that my one statement about him had put him in prison for life. Thankfully, he was exonerated in April of this year. There's Thomas Rayner James. He's not the Tommy James that might have committed the murder. And he is a free man today. You imagine the rejoicing, the celebration, the excitement for him having been set free. And the reality is that this is the picture of what God wants you and I to experience as we see the character of God vindicated. Um, We'll skip over this really fast, but the other context of Leviticus 16 is what comes right after it. And that is that if anyone brings a sacrifice, they're told, and doesn't bring it to the sanctuary, but sacrifices it anywhere else, they'll bear the guilt and the blame. Then it says in verse 7, they shall no more offer their sacrifices to who? Demons. It says if you offer your sacrifice in the wilderness, you're offering it to demons. You've got to bring it to the sanctuary. The devils are out there where where Azazel is released to. After whom they have played the harlot. Signs of the Times, August 24, says this. In the Jewish service, under the special direction of God, the sacrifices were to be offered only at the tabernacle through the medium of the priest. If he who wished to make an offering was negligent and failed to carry out the specified arrangement of God, he was to be cut off from his people. The object was to impress the minds of the people with the great truth that man can have access to God only through Christ. Is that good news? You see, sometimes there's extreme measures that are taken and we wonder, why is God so worried about that? The reason it was an abomination is because it obscured that Jesus is the only way of salvation. The Savior says, no man cometh to the Father but by me. All religious service, however attractive and costly, that endeavors to merit the favor of God. No matter how beautiful our church is, no matter how great our worship service is, if I come in order to get God to like me, I've missed the whole point. All mortification of the flesh, all penance and laborious work to procure the forgiveness of sin and the divine favor, whatever prevents us from making Christ our entire dependence is abomination in the sight of God. Whatever keeps me from relying completely on Jesus. And friends, even the doctrine of the sanctuary has been misused to do this very thing. To turn into something that I do rather than the fact that Jesus is the only one who can cleanse the sanctuary. So let's let Jesus explain to us what this looks like in terms that might be a little bit easier for you to grasp. If, if this has sounded a little bit complicated, a little bit hard to follow, then tune in now because Jesus makes it crystal clear for us. John 14 verses 2 and 3 he says, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. My goal is to bring you to God. I'm going to the Father, he says, and I want for you to come to the Father too. Now let's keep going. Verse four. And where I go, you know the way. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas is like, yeah, hold up, Jesus. We don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. And Jesus responds by saying, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's why he could tell them that, hey, 
you destroy the temple and I'll raise it up in three days because Jesus is the entire plan of salvation. The person of Jesus is absolutely everything that we need. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then they say, well, just show us the Father and that's plenty for us, Jesus. That's what Philip says. Then verse 7, if you had known me, you would have, or maybe this is right, actually, sorry, this is the next verse and then Philip says that. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Philip says, show us the Father. Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He's acting in a mediatorial role. There are people outside the presence of God who internally cannot handle coming into the presence of God. And what Jesus needs them to know is, you feel comfortable in my presence? You've walked with me for three and a half years. You've seen me heal. You've seen me forgive. You've seen how I act. Then you have seen what the Father is like. You've seen the Father because you've seen me. Then he goes on to say, um, in, in chapter 16, he tells basically that, that this persecuting power is going to take place, like we've seen in Daniel chapter 8. The time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father. They don't know what he's like, and that's why they're acting the way that they are. They haven't yet seen what his character is like. Then it goes on to say, the Spirit is coming and he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Notice the judgment specifically says, of judgment because the ruler of this world is cast out. He's sent to the wilderness. He's banished. All of the sin problem is on his head. It's his responsibility, not Yahweh's. Um, 2 Corinthians, Paul says it this way, but even if our gospel, the, the good news about Jesus is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, Satan is the one who blinds eyes, has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the good news of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Uh, Satan has tried to, to mar our understanding so that we think that, yeah, Jesus may be a nice person, but that can't be the image of God. That can't be who God really is. I can't just go there. I can't come into God's presence. Because God is a God of justice and terrible majesty, Satan caused them, humanity, to look upon him as severe and unforgiving. Thus he drew men to join him in rebellion against God. What is it that draws us into rebellion against God? It's to think that he is severe and unforgiving. And the night of woe settled down upon the earth of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, here is where we get this picture that Christ's role as mediator is going to come to an end. Have you ever heard that before? There's coming a day when humanity will need to stand in the presence of a holy God without a mediator. And Jesus gives us a picture of what that looks like. You ready for it? These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. Okay, so what is the figurative language? Uh, parables that he's used. What, what was another figure that was used to describe what God is all about? What his kingdom is all about? The sanctuary, right? So I've spoken to you in figurative language. I gave you the sanctuary as figurative language. But the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. I'll just tell you straight up about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, 
And I do not say that I shall pray the Father for you. No longer are you going to have to come to me in order to feel like you can come to the Father. You see this? He's saying no longer. There's coming an end point to the mediatorial role of Jesus. There's coming a point where no longer does he have to represent what the character of the Father is like. And what is it that he's leading us to? What is his hope for us? What is it that he hopes that we'll finally grasp? For the Father himself loves you. God himself loves you. And if we are brought to that realization, sin will be gone from our lives. Does that sound like too big of a claim? If we come to realize that he's not stern, he's not unforgiving, then we'll finally come to him and with arms open wide and we'll allow him to do the cleansing that he's longing to do. The Father himself loves you. And the word there is phileo, which is not that self-sacrificing love of agape, but it's the brotherly love to say, hey, he loves you and he likes you like a brother and like a friend. The Father himself loves you. Notice this. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 76 and 77. With untold love, our God has loved us. Our love awakens toward him as we comprehend something of the length and breadth and depth and height of this love that passes knowledge. By the revelation of the attractive loveliness of Christ, by the knowledge of his love expressed to us while we were yet sinners, the stubborn heart is melted and subdued. I don't know about you, but I wonder, why am I so stubborn? Why do I keep making the same mistakes? Why do I still react in the same way to people? What's wrong with me? I have not seen enough of the attractive loveliness of Christ. And I hear people say, you need to stop talking about the attractive loveliness of Christ. And I simply say, my Bible leads me to no other conclusion than this, simply that God is love. The stubborn heart is melted and subdued, and the sinner is transformed and becomes a child of heaven. God, God does not employ compulsory measures. Love is the agent which he uses to expel sin from the heart. We might say, well, let's just leave love to the people out there to talk about, the other Christians to talk about. Well, then how are we supposed to accomplish our message, which is the cleansing of the sanctuary, to give this warning to the world of what God wants to do? It is only love that expels sin from the heart. By it, he changes pride into humility and enmity and unbelief into love and faith. And the one who absorbed the most of God's love When he was here on planet earth, the disciple John said this, love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have, what's that word? Boldness in the day of judgment. I don't know how you felt about the judgment. I don't know what that term does to you to think about the day of atonement, the investigative judgment, but God wants for you to have boldness in the day of judgment because of his love for you. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. Because fear involves torment. It's it's our fear of God that, that enables us not to be able to handle the presence of God. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. And then it gives us the final marching orders. As we leave today, it says, If someone says, I love God, And hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? I might walk out of here thinking, oh, that's great. I already know that. I already love God. I know he's good. But how about 
the person that I love the least on this planet. Because God basically gives me this equation that I love God like I love the person that I love the least. Think about any person on the planet, the most frustrating, angering person to you. I don't know where he is, what he does, or she. But God wants you to love that person and all of his craziness. He wants you to love him. And that is the miracle that only God can do in cleansing the sanctuary of my heart. I want to have the heart of Natalie Figures to say, I'm going to sit and listen. I want to find out what's really going on. I want to know the full story. And I want to have the rejoicing that comes from the exoneration of knowing the character of God. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. The last message, you want it? It's, it's not contained on a chart or a timeline, although those could be involved. The fact is what the world needs to know is a revelation of God's character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory in their own life and character. They are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. For the Father himself loves you. And that changes absolutely everything. just want to invite you to bow your heads with me. To ask God to let this reality of who he is sink in a little bit deeper. We've got to settle into this truth. We've got to be sealed with his character. To know that he's got arms wide open. That he's longing to forgive and cleanse. That all the cleansing takes place through God. just invite you to have a moment between you and the one who loves you more than his own existence. Father, thank you that you're not who Satan has made you out to be. Thank you that, that you don't call us to fear, but to be perfected in love. Lord God, open our eyes wider to your incredible love, your incredible mercy, your incredible grace. And Father, may that change everything. May it finally take care of this deadly problem of sin that is inside each and every one of us. That combustible material that cannot stand in your presence. Father, may we finally open our hearts up to you and allow you to do the cleansing work that you long to do, that you're willing to do, and that only you can do. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.